Lord, we thank you that your word is powerful, that your word has created heavens and the earth and all of us and sustains it. And we thank you that you are a speaking God, that you love to speak to us. And we pray that your words will go forth and come to us and, and accomplish your will before returning to you. We pray that you will make us your people, your church, um, that the world desperately needs for us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in this short series last week, we, um, we saw how Jesus got arrested bound and brought in front of Annas and Caiaphas, later on Caiaphas, the chief priests. And then in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night, they take Jesus to the palace of the Roman governor, Pilate. It's early in the morning in this trial, and it could be called a trial, if it could be called a trial. Um, it, it begins in the twilight of the morning. A trial is supposed to reveal the truth. Find out what the facts are and what things are made up. And at the height of this trial, Pilate asks, what is truth? Pilate asks the question, but really we know that he's not interested in finding out the truth. In fact, none of the people in this story except Jesus is interested in the truth. Jesus wanted the truth come out. So if you have your Bibles um, out, um, look back to chapter 18, verse 20. Jesus says, I've, open, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where, Jew, uh, where, where the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. You see what I'm saying? He wants a trial. He's saying that, look, I've said everything openly. You've heard what I said. Bring those witnesses and test me out. Test me against what I've said and what, what they've heard. He wants the truth to come out. But when he requests this sort of trial, the temple officials slap him in the face. And they say, is this the way that you talk to the high priest? And it's the same in our text. Pilate asks for the charge uh, uh, to the Jews um, who brought Jesus uh, to him in verse 29. But they don't have a charge. So in verse 30, they say, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. What they're saying is, he's a criminal, just trust us. And while when Pilate pushes back, instead of bringing the truth uh, to come out, they then express their desire. Desire to kill Jesus, they say in verse 30, we have no right to execute anyone. That's the reason why they brought Jesus uh, forth. They are not interested in the truth, but they want to kill Jesus. That's why they brought Jesus to Pilate. And Pilate himself ignores the truth as well. After talking to Jesus, it's clear to him that Jesus is innocent. He says it three times. He says, I find no basis for a charge against him. Chapter 18, verse 38, 19, 4, and 6. Three times he says, I find no basis to charge him. Yet... He flogs Jesus. Yet he had the soldiers make the crown of thorns and put, put it on him. Yet he, uh, people slap him and mock him. No one here is interested in the truth. Why not? Why are Annas, Caiaphas, Jewish ruling council, the people there, why are, why are these people not interested in the truth? I think here it's helpful to um, think about why these people might have gone into politics. Politics in 1991, uh, uh, Vaclav Havel. I think I'm, I'm, if, if um, I'm probably 
messing up uh, his, his name completely. I'm sorry. Uh, from, of Czechoslovakia, except that he was the president of uh, Czechoslovakia became, before it became Czech, uh, Czech Republic. He then actually became the president of the Czech Republic as well. But anyway, he was accepting an award in the universe from the University of, uh, University of Copenhagen. And in his acceptance speech, he speaks really eloquently about temptations of political power, why people go into politics. And he gives three reasons. The first is just idealism, idealism. There are people who believe in certain values, beliefs, that if this came true, the world will be better. They want to change the world in a better way. So when politicians are asked, why have you gone into politics? This is the reason they cite, because I believe what I, uh, believe certain things to be right, and I want you to, uh, I want to, uh, bring about that change. But then he gives on, he goes on to give two more reasons why people go into politics. The second, he says, is the element of self-affirmation. And I think this is the, uh, the quote that, um, that came up. He said, is it possible to imagine a more attractive way to affirm your own existence and its importance than that, of, uh, that, than that offered by a political power? In essence, it gives you a tremendous opportunity to leave your mark in, a, in the broadest sense, on your surroundings, to shape the world around you in your own image, to enjoy the respect that every political office almost automatically bestows upon the one who holds it. See what he's saying? He's saying that people go into politics because of self-affirmation, because it's an exaggerated, it gives you an exaggerated sense of the, of the self. What you do matters not only for the people around you, but what you do matters for the entire country. What you do matters in the entire history. You can leave your mark. Did you hear that word? You can shape the world around you in your own image. That's why people go into politics, because people want to feel significant. They want to leave their mark in history. And finally, he then talks about the privileges that come with the political position. He then talks about how when he's the president of Czechoslovakia, it makes him important, too important, in fact, to go into a dentist's office. Office. So he has a dentist come to him when he, uh, when, when he needs dental work. His time is too important for him to spend time grocery shopping and cook, and so he has a cook that cooks for him. He has a chauffeur that drives him around. And at some point, this might be, this not, might not be the reason why people go into politics, but this turns into something that they can't live without. This might be the reason why people want to stay in politics. That, this might seem a bit like a di- digression, but I think it gets right at the heart of why the chief priests, the Jewish ruling council, do not want the truth. They don't want a trial. They don't want the truth to be carefully examined because they had too much invested in their positions of power. So you might think that they maybe, maybe it was idealism. Maybe there is a little bit of idealism left. But John tells us that, that that is not the case. So if you flip back to chapter 11, John chapter 11, verse 48, this is right after Jesus la- uh, raises Lazarus from the dead. And people are flocking to him. And this is what the chief priests say. Chief priests and the Pharisees say to themselves, chapter 11, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Jesus just raised somebody from the dead. 
And they're concerned about their position. Their position. That's why they didn't want the truth to come out. They're not interested in the truth. And if you still think that there is some idealism left, some theology left, um, he removes all doubt in our text in chapter 19, verse 15. Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest, chapter 19, verse 15, say, we have no king but Caesar. The Israelites are supposed to have God, Yahweh, as their king. Chief priests are point are supposed to point to the fact that Yahweh is their king. But they've betrayed all their theological conviction because they want to retain their power and privilege. We have no king but Caesar. And Pilate's no different. Once again, he proclaimed Jesus' innocence three times, and he thinks maybe he's the son of God, because when he hears this, he becomes afraid. Chapter 19, verse 8. So, in verse 12, chapter 19, verse 12, we're told that he wants to set Jesus free until the mob mob comes and threatens him, saying, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. The Jewish mob accuses of Pilate being an enemy of Caesar. And once again, because he wants to retain that title, it's a technical thing, his power and privilege, he's willing to sacrifice Jesus. What is truth? But really, none are interested in the truth. You know, this is supposed to be a trial for Jesus, but really it becomes a trial for Caiaphas, for Annas, for Pilate, and for people who are there. And because they are so bloodthirsty, because they are so eager to retain their power, they show themselves to be guilty. And you see, we too are, have a part in this trial. This is a trial for us as well. Are we like them? What's at stake for us? To what extent are we willing to avoid the truth about ourselves, about Jesus? To what extent are we, are we to go? Aldous Huxley, once again, I quoted him last week, um, but he's got a very different um, uh, quote uh, this week. Um, uh, The author of Brave New World um, gives an insight of why some people reject Christ, why some people reject Christianity altogether. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. You see, what he said was he had motives for Christianity not to be true. He assumed that there was none, and he found reasons, and it wasn't that difficult And he said the reason why he wanted not for Christianity and for systems of morality not to be true was because of his sexual freedom. He wanted to retain his sexual freedom. That's the reason why he resisted, that he insisted that there was no meaning, that Christianity and religions in this world are not true. For others, it's other things. And even for Christians as well, there are parts of the truth that we ignore. We turn a blind eye. Christ comes to shine his light, but we don't want to face the truth. We want to hide. It might be that we don't want Christ's truthfulness to examine our greed. Because in the end, we want to be rich. 
We want to be comfortable. It might be that we don't want Christ's truthfulness to examine our parenting because our identity is so invested in it. It might be that we don't want to examine our motives about getting married, wanting to be successful, wanting to be beautiful, whatever it is. We're too invested in these things and we don't want Christ's truth to come into our life and examine us. What's at stake? What's at stake for you? What are the truths of Christianity? What are the truths that Christ sheds in our life that we want to avoid, that we are avoiding desperately? The authorities turn a blind eye to the truth. The truth that Jesus is innocent, but there are many other truths that come out in this text. And, but one of the, uh, uh, the truths that John wants us to make sure that we know in this text is that Jesus is king. That Jesus is king. When Jesus, uh, when the Jews, um, oh yes, um, when Jews bring Jesus to Pilate, um, Pilate, once again, is not so much interested in, the, in what Jesus has done, but really, Jesus, uh, Pilate seems to be interested in who Jesus is. The question that he asks is, are you the king of the Jews? 18 verse 33. Jesus doesn't deny it. He later answers in verse 36, the kingdom, his kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate then goes, then you are a king. And later asks the Jews, do you want to release the king of the Jews? The king and kingdom is repeated again and again and again because John wants you to know Jesus is the king over this world. And John has this very ironic coronation scene, doesn't he? He's the only gospel. John's the only one who records this coronation scene. After flogging him in chapter 19, the soldiers twist uh, a crown of thorns and, and, and crowns him and puts it on his head. They clothe him in purple, the royal robe, and proclaims in verse 3, chapter 19, verse 3, Hail! the king of the Jews. And this seems like mockery. But remember last week how Jesus was in full control over the whole situation. Jesus is in full control to the nervous Pilate who claims that he has the power to crucify or let him go free. Jesus says, you have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus is in control because he is the king. And he went to that, he's going to the cross. He wanted this coronation. He wanted to be the king that wears the crown of thorns. He is in control. And this is a truth that we really need to remind ourselves again and again, that Jesus is our king. And it's so difficult for us because we all want to be our own little kings. We want control over our life, as we talked about last week. But we also want to feel important we want to make, I remember what Havel said about the second reason why people go into politics. It gives us a sense of importance. You're affirmed as you leave your mark in this world, as you shape the world in your own image. And this isn't just politics, it's really life. This is why people live. This is why people work. For people in Hong Kong, I think this is also the reason why we say we're busy all the time. We're busy. Because it gives us a sense of importance when we say, we're busy, I'm busy. It says to people, well, my time is important because I'm important. Um, Bridget Schultz, um, the author, it just came out really this, uh, a couple months ago, the author of a book called Overwhelmed, makes this comment about our culture. 
aristocrats back in the days led a life of extravagant relaxation. If you were an aristocrat, if you've made it, it means that you didn't work. You had loads of free time. You played cards and hung out with your friends. That's what you did. But now, she says, they model themselves after globetrotting humanitarians like Bono. She quotes one, uh, uh, one, uh, one woman's observation that a fancy cars are no longer status symbol. Instead, she says, it's how busy you are, how many activities you're in, the bumper stickers on your car, that shows your status. Busyness signals to the world that the world wants so much of you, that more than you can possibly give because you are an important person. And I think part of the reason why we strive to be so busy in our life is because we want to feel important. We want to be our own little kings. But here's the thing about being a Christian. Christ is crowned as king. He is in control. He is the savior. And we are his servants. He tells us that we are his creatures. He says, as we will see soon, that he will give us significance, that we don't need to obsess over saving the whole world, doing all these little things. He wants us to rest. And rest really is a radical witness to the fact that God is in control, that he is our king. Despite the fact, that even if the things seem uh, go out of control, that God is our king. And if we have truly crowned Jesus as our king, God as our king, I'm convinced that we all would pray more as well. Once again, I want to say something about the prayer meeting. 7.30, come, really, come to pray. I know you're busy, but I highlight this prayer meeting because it's one place where we're not doing anything. We're not, we're not going and changing the world. We're not being busy. We're, what we're saying when we're in prayer is saying, Lord, you are able, you are God, you are in control. Come and help us do your will upon this world. That's what we're saying in prayer. We're crowning Jesus as our king. Come pray with us. Come crown him as our king and let's depend on him. In all things that we do in the church, let's depend on him. So come and pray. It's difficult to crown Jesus as our king. Part of it, once again, is because we want to be our kings. But also, part of it is because we find it really difficult that the kind of king that Jesus shows himself to be. Remember James and John, sons of Zebedee, who wanted to sit next to Jesus, right and left hand? That's because they thought that Jesus was going to wear the crown of gold and jewelry, all a crown of power and authority. But that's not what he gets That's not the kind of king that Jesus is. Jesus wears a crown of thorns. King Jesus is one who gives up his power for the sake of others. And he wants us to follow him. And that's difficult. He wants to use our resources for others to be generous, to give our money away, give our time away. He wants us to take care of widows and orphans. And by the way, at some point we'll talk about adoption and how really that is, adoption should, we should consider, all Christian families should consider adoption. Anyway, he wants us to lay down our, our lives for others. 
He wants us to use our time, not selfishly, but for others. He wants to, us to be last and be servants of all. Even if it costs um, every, uh, a lot for, for, for us. Because, you see, the way of the cross, the cross is not just a place where Jesus dies. It's the way of life that he shows us. Anyway, I'm convinced that when Jesus comes back and the whole creation is restored, we'll have all sorts of heroes that you've never heard before. All sorts of people who wore the clothes of a servant will celebrate works of people who quietly gave their lives away. People who were behind the scenes, who were praying, will celebrate not famous pastors, but Sunday school teachers who give week by week to the lives of these children who are not celebrated. We'll celebrate the works of lives of people who've never, we've never heard of, people who died, martyrs, people who were nameless, but were faithful to Jesus Christ. You see, our king wore a crown of thorns, and he calls us to follow him. And cross is not just a place where Jesus dies. It's the way, it shows us the way of life for Christ followers. The way of the cross is way of life. We need to follow him who wears a crown of thorns. And I know that's hard. I know that's hard. But that's the life we've chosen. <laughs> When we, when we've, when Christ has come and when we saw him, this is a life that God gives us. But we do this because of the third title that Jesus is given. That Jesus is the Son of God. So, once again, if you can take a look at uh, chapter 19, verse 7. They say, we have the law and according to the law he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Son of God is who Jesus is. It's one thing to claim to be king. It's one th- another thing to claim that you are the son of God. King de- de- demands, I don't know, obedience and respect or whatnot. Son of God demands your life. He says, you are the, the son of God means he is our creator, that he owns every part of our life, our heart. But this son of God, who is in full control of this whole situation, goes to the cross. Why? I mean, we all know the reason why. And, but Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 7. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And in verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God had made you also an heir. We crown Jesus as our king, even as he, uh, uh, as he goes to the cross, we, 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 because the Son of God makes us his children. Did you catch that word adoption here? We're adopted into sonship through Jesus Christ. And masculine form is important because sons were given inheritance through Jesus we're given inheritance. We are made heirs. We're people. Havel said that people stay in politics because they want the privilege. We are people of tremendous privilege. Privilege that all of that that comes with being children of God. All the blessings of heaven, all the promises of God are ours because of Jesus. Havel said that people go into politics because they want to make a difference. But you see, 
I just read a book um, called World is Not Yours to Save. But he, uh, the, the, the guy who wrote the book talks about how he was really into activism and how he really wanted to change the world. But he was confronted with two realities. One, the world is way too sinful, way too corrupt, way, way beyond his control. And secondly, that he did not have the ability to fix it. We don't have the ability to fix it. But what Jesus says on the cross and as he comes back uh, to life is that he is the savior of the world. He has saved it. He has saved it. He is the king over this world. And it frees us from the burden of trying to save the world. Jesus, to, to, to make this difference, we are free to obey Jesus. We're free to, to, to follow Jesus. And Havel said that, he, uh, that, that people go into politics because of self-affirmation, because we want to feel important. But if you build your identity on, on anything other than Jesus, you're building your identity on sinking sand. Your beauty will fade. Your intellect, well, there's somebody smarter, somebody more successful, more self-confidence, more righteous, more virtuous, or whatever it is, if you're a mom, somebody whose house is more tidy than yours, somebody whose children are more perfect than yours, whatever your identity, my main identity is, you're building your identity on a sinking sand. If it doesn't crumble now in this lifetime, it will crumble when Jesus comes back and you'll regret, you will think, you'll think to yourself, why did I spend all this time doing this? All identities except one will fade. That we are children of God, that we are heirs of his kingdom, God's opinion of us will not change. And we can build our life on that. We will, in fact, build our eternity on that. And that's really great news. And if you're thinking, well, this is all good, but what's the catch? It seems too good to be true. Everything that we want, we find in Jesus. What's the catch? It does mean that we have to face the truth that Jesus reveals to us. It does mean that we crown him king over every part of our life. It does mean following the Messiah, the king who wears a crown of thorns, whose way of life is the cross. It means modeling our life after him. As we come to close, I th- we're going to sing this song, the final song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And really, this is a man who knows Jesus. This is a man who knows Jesus because he says, all the, all the riches he'll count as loss, that he will boast only in the death of Jesus Christ, that he will give his soul, life, and his all. And we are able to do this because God has given himself his, his all, his life, and his all for us. So let's now please stand. Let's think about the words. Let, let's think about Jesus, the one who wears the crown of thorns. And let's sing together when I survey the wondrous cross. <laughs>